Chapter 15 of The Radio Planet This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lyndon Godsall The Radio Planet By Ralph Milne Farley Plans for Escape We can make the alcohol in a few days in my laboratory, Cabo wrote, but it will not do for us to escape too precipitately lest our plans be discovered and blocked. The Verkings, like sleight of hand, and wish to keep me with them as their court magician. Let us bide our time until they become sufficiently accustomed to you, so that they will not question your accompanying me on an expedition. Then, way to the plain and off to Cupia. The Ant-Man ascended. It seemed logical, and yet I wonder if this logic would not have done credit to Judd, the excuse-maker. I wonder if Cabot was not subconsciously influenced by a scientific desire to complete his radio set in this land of people who used only wood and flint, I wonder. At all events, the work proceeded. He had planned to use the slag from the copper furnace as the ore for his iron, but the more he thought about it, the more he realized that his high sulfur content would probably ruin any steel which he produced. Fortunately, however, he ran across a deposit of magnetic iron or near verakin. This he ground and placed in his crucibles with charcoal, and they built charcoal fires in the pits around them. The slag he slammed off with copper, later iron ladles. The melting had to be repeated many times in order to purify the iron sufficiently and further in order to secure just the right carbon content for cast iron, steel, or wrought iron, according to which he needed for any particular purpose. This securing the proper carbon content was largely a matter of cut and try. With iron and steel available, he now made pots, retorts, hammers, anvils, drills, wire drawings, dies, and a decent Bessemer converter. Copper tubes for glass blowing and copper wire were drawn. A simple wooden lathe was made for winding thread around the wires. This thread, by the way, was the only Verikingian product which the earthman found ready to his hand. As soon as the iron retorts were available, the joint manufacturer of Sal ammoniac and soda was started, as already outlined by Dogo. In iron pots, Cabo melted together finely ground white sand with lime, soda, and potash, and blew the resulting glass into bottles, retorts, test tubes, and other laboratory apparatus, also jars for his electric batteries. He used both soda and potash, as this would render the glass more fusible than if made with either alone. 
Lead was melted from galena crystal in small quantities for solder. Thus was suggested to Dogo. The manufacture on the side of bullets, gunpowder, and cartridges for the rifle which Miles had in his quarters, and for the one which lay in the concealed airplane. Tales of the copper smelting had spread among the populace, who evinced such great interest that double guards had to be placed and maintained about the laboratory enclosure and every returning military expedition brought with it samples of unusual minerals. Meanwhile, Cabo instituted a regular campaign of getting Verkingig accustomed to Dogo. Every day Dogo would parade the high-walled streets with Quiven, the golden flame, perched upon his back. The ten-foot ant inspired great interest and the considerable fear. She enjoyed her rides thoroughly, not only for the novelty of the thing, but also because her seat on his six-foot-high back brought her head above the level of the fence palings and thus enabled her to survey the private yards of everyone. Tippy had not been seen or heard from. Arkilu, the beautiful thoroughly made up, with the Earthman, and even admitted that her love for him had been a mistake. Plans for her wedding with Judd proceeded rapidly. When this coming marriage was publicly announced, At, the terrible, sent in a Roy Runner with the message that he didn't in the least care. Quiven now lived in the palace so as to be near her father, but came to work regularly each day. Theof, the grim, interposed no objection to this, and, in fact, frequently accompanied his daughter to the laboratory. He loved to mess around the bottles and retorts, and lost much of the grimness when he engaged in this childless middlesomeness. So everyone was happy except Tipi, the steadfast, and at the terrible. Judd continued the operation of the brickyard, even though Cabo had no more need of bricks, for Judd planned to build himself a brick palace which would outshine even the palace of King Theof. Melting the platinum for the wires presented a problem until Miles thought of electrolyzing some ordinary water into its constituent hydrogen and oxygen and then burning these two materials together in a double blowpipe, much like that used in oxyacetylene welding. But to do this, he had to make batteries. To this end, he already had sal, ammonic, and jars. He needed carbon and zinc. For carbon, he pressed charcoal into compact blocks. To extract zinc from the blend ore, he made long cylindrical retorts of clay with a long clay pipe for a vent. The ore, after being thoroughly roasted in the copper roasting furnace to remove all sulphur, was ground, mixed with half its weight of powdered charcoal, and then charged into the retorts where it was baked. The result was to distill the pure zinc, which condensed on the walls of the tubes. 
cabot now at least had all the elements for the batteries and so was able to employ about 70 cells in multitude to get the 2 volts 350 amperes necessarily to actualize the oxygen and hydrogen for melting his platinum the platinum proved to be quite free of iridium and so was easily drawn into wires needless to state the distilling of alcohol in large quantities ostensibly for the laboratory burners but actually for dogo's airplane was commenced as soon as they had blown their first glass retorts miles was going strong one day, in the midst of all the technical progress, as Miles was passing through one of the streets of Varakingi on some errand or other, and admiring the quaint and brightly coloured wood carvings on the high walls which lined the way, his attention was arrested by the design over one of the gateways. It was a crimson swastika with a crimson triangle, the insignia of the priests of the lost religion of Kupia, the priests who had befriended him in their hidden refuge of the caves of Kar when he was a fugitive during the dark days of his second war against the Ant-Men. Could it be that the lost region was also implanted upon this continent? Miles had never discussed religion, and argue or judge or quiven or creota or any of his verkin friends. Somehow the subject had never come up. Full of curiosity, Cabo knocked in the door. Immediately a small aperture opened and a voice from within inquired, Whence come you? For reply the earthman gave one of the passwords of the Kupian religion to his surprise. The gate swung open and he was admitted into the presence of a long-robed priest, clad exactly like his friends of the caves of Car. "'What do you wish?' asked the guardian of the gate, having made his way so far. Miles decided to continue on the analogy of the religion of his own continent. Accordingly, he boldly replied, "'I wish to speak with the holy leader.' "'Very well,' said the guard, and closing the gate and barring it, he led Miles through many winding passages, to a door on which he knocked three times. The knock was repeated from within, the door opened and Miles entered to gaze upon a strangely familiar scene. The room was richly carved and coloured, on three sides hung the stone lamps of the Verkings, around the wall sat a score of more of long Rome priests, some on the level and some on slightly raised platforms. On the highest platform of all, directly opposite the point where Cabot had entered, sat the only hooded figure in the chamber, quite evidently the leader of the faith. Him, the earthman, approached and bowed low, whereat there came the unexpected words, Welcome to Varigingi, Miles Cabot. Then the priest descended, took the visitor by the hand and led him to a seat at his own left. A few minutes later the assembly had been temporarily suspended, and Miles and his host were chatting together like old friends. Miles told the venerable prelate 
the complete history of all the adventures on both continents of the planet Poros, not omitting to dwell with considerable detail upon the vicissitudes of the lost religion of Kupia. This interested the priest greatly, and he asked numerous questions in that connection. Strange, strange, he remunerated. It is undoubtedly the same religion as ours, so there must, at some point, have been some connection between the two continents. Yes, there must have been, the Earthman assented, for the written language of both Kopia and Varakingi is the same, yet the total different flora and fauna of the two continents negates this history. Where did Capicius originate, if you know, the priest inquired, we do not know, Miles replied, but there are two conflicting legends. One is that the forerunners of the race came from across the boiling seas. The other is that they sprang, fully formed, from the soil. There is also a legend that creatures like me dwell beyond the boiling sea, and this legend at least appears to be born out of the existence of your Verikings. Strange, still more strange, the prelate declared, for we have but one story of our origin. The race of Varakings descended from another world above the skies. Who knows but that we, like you, came from that place you call the planet. Minos, I think you said. After some further conversation, the conclave was called to order again, and Miles took this as the signal for his departure. He was given a warm invitation to return. Truly, a new avenue of speculation had been opened up to him by his chance meeting with the holy leader. Miles firmly resolved to return again at the earliest opportunity. But from this time on, events moved with such rapidity that never again did he enter the sacred precincts. First, he was stumped by his radio tubes. How was he to make a vacuum pump which would exhaust the air? The solution, when he finally occurred to him, was absurdly simple. He utilized atmospheric pressure. He made a glass tube 30 feet long and sealed his grid, his plates and his lead wires into one end, closing that end off hermetically. Then he fashioned a piston of waterproof cloth fiber so as to fit into the closed end, almost touching these elements and yet free to move away from them without tearing them. Then he filled the tube with water and inverted it, but the water did not drop away to a height of about 28 feet, as it would have done on Earth. Of course not, for this was Venus. Venus, of an atmospheric pressure particularly equal to that of Earth, holding the water up, and yet with gravity much less than that of Earth tending to pull the water down. But by lengthening in the pipe sufficiently, Cabo finally got the proper balance. The fiber piston was pulling down, and a practical vacuum, practically free of water vapor, had been created. He then sealed off the upper portion of the glass tube with his blowtorch, and he had his radio triad. For these radio tubes, the glass was made accordingly to a special formula of this same glass, Cabo-fashioned lenses for the goggles which he and Dogo planned to wear on their trip home across the boiling seas. 
One of the constituents of this special glass is lead monoscope and commonly known as lithrogids. This gave the radio man some concern until Doggo suggested melting lead into a rotating cylindrical iron drum with spiral ribs. By pumping cold air in one end of his drum, fine particles of litharges were driven out through the other, where the accompanied in a stationary container. About this time, the king and Judd began clamoring for results, so Cabo made a few electric lights with platinum filaments. And, entirely apart from pacifying his two patrons, it was well that he did this, for the speedy burning out of these lights showed him that he had a new problem to face, namely the elimination of all traces of oxygen in his tubes. He got rid of considerable by placing tubes in a strong magnetic field while exhausting, but this was not quite enough. It looked as though his experiments would have to end at this point, for with an immense quantity of alcohol completed, and with Pyrex glass for their goggles, everything was all set for the conspirators to locate Dogo's hidden plane and fly across the boiling seas to Kupia. The Verikings were by now sufficiently used to the huge Ant-Man and his participation in Cabo's scientific experiments. So not no objection would be raised to his accompanying the radio man on one of the latter's expeditions in search of certain minerals which he believed could be found in the country. Two carts were laden with tents, food and bedding, were taken along, and beneath these supplies he placed the alcohol and goggles. There was no need to conceal them, for none of the Verikins except Quiven ever had any distinct knowledge of what he was about, and to her he explained that the alcohol was the purpose of loosening certain materials from the solid rocks, and that the goggles were to protect his and Dogo's eyes from the fumes. A squad of soldiers pulled the carts. Dogo had demurred at this, suggesting that the soldiers be left behind, and offering to pull them himself, but Miles pointed out how easily he could scatter the Verikins when the time came by threatening him with the magic slingshot, i.e. the rifle. Early in the morning they set forth, just as the unseen rising sun began to tint the eastern sky with purple. When the time came to say farewell to Quiven, Miles found to his surprise that his voice was positively choked with emotion. Goodbye, goodbye, Flame, he said. Please wish me a safe journey. Of course I do, she said. But why so sad? You sound though you never expected to see me again. One never can tell, he replied. Your food had disagreed with you, she bantered. I feel confident that you will return, for have you not often quoted to me? They cannot kill a minion. Run along and come back safely. Thus he left her, a smile on his face and a tear in his eye. He hated to deceive Quiven, who had been a good little pal, in spite of her occasional fairps of temper. He looked and waved to her where she stood like a golden statue upon the city wall. It would be his last glimpse of a true friend. Then he set his face res resonantly to the eastward. 
Not only did he feel a pang at leaving Quiven, but he felt even more of a pang at leaving his radio set half-finished. The scientist always predominated his makeup, and besides, like the good workman that he was, he hated an unfinished job. But he realized that his radio project had been only a means to an end, the end being to get in touch with his friends and family in Coupier, and that his end was about to be accomplished more directly. Just think, tomorrow night he would be home ready to do battle for his loved ones against the usurper Yuri. The thought thrilled him, and all regrets passed away. Lilia! He was to see his beautiful, dainty Lilia once more, and his baby son, Q, rightful ruler of Coupier. He resolved that, once back with them, he would never more leave them. Lilia had been right. His return to Earth had been a foolhardly venture. Results had proved it. As Poblaf, the Kupian philosopher, used to say, the test of a plan is how it works out. Cabo was eager, even impatient, to see the ant pace which was to carry him home. He was bubbling over with questions to ask his ant-man companion. The condition of the plane, its exact location, how well it had been concealed, and so forth. But his only means of communication with Doggo was writing, and it would never do to delay the expedition for the purpose of indulging in a written conversation. So he merely fretted and fumed, and urged the Verkin pullers of the carts to greater speed. But along toward evening a calm settled over him, a joyous calm. He was going home, going home. The words sang in his ears. He was going to Kupia, to baby Q and Princess Leah. A nervous warmth flooded through his being, and tingled at his fingertips. He felt the strength to overcome any obstacles which might confront him. He was going home. Just before sunset, the party encamped on the outskirts of a small grove of trees, which Dogo indicated as the hiding place of his plane and other supplies. It had already been agreed that they should not inspect the machine before morning, for they did not wish to give even the slow brains of Verakin soldiers a chance to figure out their ulterior purpose, and perhaps to dispatch a runner to Verakingi with a warning to Theo and Judd. So Miles was forced to possess his soul in patience and await the dawn, to keep his mind off his troubles, he sat with the Fury Warriors about their campfire and told them tales of Kupia and the planet Earth. Never before in their experience had this strange, furless leader of theirs been so graciously condescending or so sociable. It was an evening which they would long remember. Finally, they all turned in for the night. The Earthman slept fitfully and dreamed of encounters in which, with his back to the wall, he fought with a wooden sword, alone against Prince Yuri, and Ant-Man, and Verakins, and Kupians, and whistling bees in defense of Leah and her son. Yet such is the strange alchemy of dreams that sometimes Lilia's face seemed to be covered with golden fur. With the first red flush of morning, Capo and Doggo bestirred themselves and informed their campmates that they intended to do a bit of prospecting before breakfast. Then they set out 
into the interior of the wood, the ant-man leading the way. At least they came to a small cleaning, and beyond it a thicket which Doggo indicated with a one paw as being the spot which they sought. There was the plain. Parting the foliage, they looked inside, but the thickest was empty. On the farther side, the bushes had been recently chopped down, and thence there lay a wide swath of cut trees, clear out of the woods. It was only too evident that the precious plain had been stolen. End of chapter 15